This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. In the final weeks of its just completed term, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down its long-awaited decision in Espinoza versus the Montana Department of Revenue. Kendra Espinoza's daughter attended Stillwater Christian School in Kalispell, Montana. She received scholarship money under a Montana law that gave donors a tax credit for contributions they made to scholarship programs to attend a private school, secular or religious. But the scholarship received by the Espinoza family came to an end when the Montana State Supreme Court ruled that the program violated Montana's constitutional provision banning aid to religious schools. In a close five to four decision with Chief Justice John Roberts writing the majority opinion, the Supreme Court ruled in Espinoza's favor, saying that the Montana Constitution violated the free exercise of religion clause of the First Amendment to the Constitution. To discuss the decision, I have with me on the Education Exchange, Richard Comer, a former senior attorney at the Institute of Justice who argued the case for the Espinosa family before the U.S. Supreme Court. Dick, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. I'm delighted to be back. Um, well, first of all, I got to say congratulations. I mean, this is really a great victory uh, for you and uh, the cause that you've been supporting over many years. Uh, but when we spoke a year ago, I, I thought at that time that you had a hard road to hoe. I mean, the Supreme Court had previously decided in Lock v. Davy that the state of Washington could exclude people from getting a scholarship if they were pursuing a degree to enter the ministry. That was necessary in order to keep the state from supporting religion. So it would be a violation of the establishment clause of the U.S. Constitution. So if states can exclude a scholarship to Joshua Davy, why can't they also decide not to give money to Kendra Espinoza to go to Stillwater Christian. Okay, Paul, um, I think that the uh, critical distinction is whether to regard Locke v. Davey uh, as sort of an exception to the general rule that you have to treat religion equally with non-religion, um, or whether it states a broader, more general rule um, and I think the Supreme Court had, has clearly um, uh, answered that question, that in fact, it is, Locke v. Davey should be regarded as a very narrow exception. general rule of the First Amendment, which is religious neutrality. And they foreshadowed this in their decision in the Trinity Lutheran case several years ago in which Locke v. Davey was the primary case the state of Missouri relied upon for uh, applying its state Blaine Amendment uh, to prohibit a grant directly to a church to resurface its preschool playground. And in the course of rejecting that, they said that Locke v. Davey is limited to its to the fact that there was this uh, post, well, there was colonial and post-colonial concern about funding the training of ministers. That was an essential component of the establishment of religion. Now, of course, as part of 
the establishment of religion, it was an establishment of a particular religion. So, for example, the colony and subsequent state of Massachusetts uh, supported the training of Congregationalist ministers. They didn't support the training of ministers in general. Similarly, in Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia supported the training of Anglican ministers, Church of England ministers. They didn't support the training of Baptists. They wouldn't even allow licensed Baptists to preach, which really irritated James Madison, among other people. So the the education of ministers was in fact a part of the establishment of religion. And the Supreme Court has limited lock to those historic-based situations. Well, that's interesting. So now the other part of the story is that this uh, amendment, this, uh, this part of the Constitution in Montana is called a Blaine Amendment. And, and there's a lot of discussion as to whether or not Blaine Amendments are themselves unconstitutional. But before you get into that, I'd like you to give us a little historical account about that as well. What is the Blaine, what are Blaine Amendments and, and where did they come from? Sure. Um, Blaine Amendments are found in 37 of the state's constitutions. Um, and they, they derive their name from a failed federal uh, uh, effort to amend the federal constitution to include language that said, the state shall provide no uh, aid uh, to uh, religious institutions. And this amendment failed uh, in uh, 1876. It was proposed by James G. Blaine, uh, who was a Republican and wanted to succeed U.S. Grant as president of the United States and thought that proposing this kind of a national uh, amendment would garner him some of the anti-Catholic votes that uh, were uh, anti-Catholic voters were a substantial uh, part of the uh, Republican Party. Now, he based his amendment on earlier provisions adopted uh, by certain states, especially, for example, Massachusetts in 1855, which in response to the know-nothing takeover of the Massachusetts state government, uh, passed one of the very earliest of the state Blaine Amendments and said we will not provide any assistance to uh, religious institutions and that includes... Well, what's wrong with these amendments? I mean, so they didn't get it done by the to the U.S. Constitution, but they did get it attached to lots of amendments in state constitutions. So what's wrong with them? Well, uh, up until the incorporation of the federal First Amendment, um, there was no federal violation from these state Blaine Amendments. They discriminated against religion vis-a-vis uh, -vis and religious people vis-a-vis -vis, uh, secular institutions. Um, but until the United States Supreme Court incorporated the First Amendment against uh, the states, uh, which it did in the 1940s, um, these state uh, constitutions uh, could be applied as written. 
And the Espinoza case has said is that you cannot interpret and apply those 37 state constitutions the way you could before incorporation because the supremacy clause says that the federal constitution's free exercise clause limits the Blaine Amendment and prohibits discrimination against religion versus secularism in uh, state grant programs. Well, wasn't there a lot of talk about the amendment being tainted by anti-Catholicism that was rampant in the 19th century? And that it was really the, the conditions under which it was passed that was critical to uh, the decision that really this is discriminating against a religious group? Um, that was uh, obviously the basis, or not the basis, but the primary focus for Justice Alito's concurring opinion. But the uh, uh, majority opinion, which is written by Chief Justice Roberts, is premised quite clearly on the language itself of the Blaine Amendment, and that is language which is shared by all of the Blaine Amendment, which focuses on the idea that you have to treat religious people and religious institutions worse than secular institutions. And that it's, it was clearly discrimination. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right that these were originally premised on anti-Catholicism. The Know Nothing Party in Massachusetts was viciously anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, um, and the Protestant establishment throughout the United States supported these amendments because um, they prevented the Catholics from getting any share of uh, public education dollars at a time when the public schools themselves were generically Protestant and deliberately so. As you know, Horace Mann and the people who started the public education system in Massachusetts and on which all of the other public education systems in the states were modeled, um, deliberately wanted the public schools to be religious, but they were supposed to be generically Protestants. They would not teach doctrines that uh, would uh, distinguish between Presbyterians and Methodists or Presbyterians uh, and uh, Congregationalists, but they would, they would uh, teach a kind of uh, common denominator Protestantism which was offensive to Catholics and led the Catholics to create their own school system, to demand equal aid for their own school system, which was explicitly the purpose of the Blaine Amendments to deny, to deny those demands for equal treatment. So this is a very interesting point you're making that although this is very much a part of Alito's uh, concurring decision is really not part of the main majority opinion which Justice Roberts wrote, uh, which is really sort of based on the plain meaning of the text, right? It's more of a yes. textual analysis. But now, how far does he actually go? Has he 
has has Roberts doesn't usually go very far, right? He's, <laughs> no, he doesn't. So has he really struck down all of these Blaine amendments by this uh, kind of? He never says specifically that he's done that. So can you be confident that he's done that, or is he just sort of? Can this be interpreted as just a fairly narrow decision that applies to this tax credit case and not much else? Um, no. I think that what he has done by interpreting language which is common to all 37 of the Blaine Amendments, he has written a decision that affects them all. Now, many state Supreme Court had already interpreted their Blaine language in such a way that it did not apply to school choice programs because school choice programs provide the assistance to the families, in this case, to Kendra Espinoza, to enable her to send her two daughters to a uh, private school. In her case, she chose a religious private school, and that was the problem. But the language is common to all of these, so all 37 are affected. But, for example, the moder first modern school choice program, as you know, was instituted for the city of Milwaukee in Wisconsin. And Wisconsin has a Blaine Amendment. But in the course of defend or, or, or in the course of approving the constitutionality under state law of the Milwaukee uh, Rental Choice Program, the Milwaukee Supreme, the Wisconsin Supreme Court interpreted their Blaine Amendment to distinguish between aid provided to families and aid provided to schools. And the U.S. Supreme Court in the Zellman versus Simmons-Harris case said that that same analysis applies under the federal constitution. But Montana did not follow that in interpreting their Blaine Amendment. They said uh, two things. They said that this tax credit represents public funds, which of course they can do under their state constitution, but they have never done for any other form of tax benefit in the state of Montana, like the tax deductions that people could take for donations directly to a school. Um, and or to their church, right? Or to their church. Um, it, this is, it, school choice cases bring out the worst in some state Supreme Court justices, I have to say, because they just ignore the implication for other forms of tax uh, benefits in their state. They, you'd think that judges are supposed to think about the implications of their decisions. And there's none of that in the Montana Supreme Court decision in the majority opinion. Well, now listen, I want to ask you another question because you are saying that this is a pretty big, pretty broad decision. And that's what Justice Stephen Breyer says in his dissent. He says the door has now been opened up to religious charter schools because if the government is going to give money to a secular nonprofit organization to create a school, 
once they start doing that, how can they deny giving money to somebody who's going to start a religious charter school? Uh, because a religious charter school is basically an oxymoron. Um, Stephen Breyer um, does not understand charter schools. Charter schools are public schools. They are subject to public control. They are government schools. And just as the Supreme Court has said, since the 1960s in its school prayer um, and uh, Bible reading cases from 1963 and 1964, public schools may not teach religion from a religious perspective. I mean, they can teach comparative religion, they can teach about religion, but they cannot teach religion the way a religious school does. Well, those decisions continue to apply to all public schools, whether those public schools are managed by a school board or by board of directors, those are public schools. And much as people who uh, uh, like charter schools wish we could have a broader variety of charter schools, as long as charter schools are public schools, government schools, they cannot teach religion. Um, so that's, I think, a a misunderstanding, a, 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 a nonsensical fear on his part. Now, now li listen, Dick, you argued this case before the Supreme Court last January 22nd. Seems like a long time ago, given all that's <laughs> happened. It sure does. Uh, it, it must have been intimidating to stand before nine justices in black robes sitting on a high bench looking down at you inside a marble palace. So. What was it like, and what was the toughest question a justice asked of you that day? You know, I can't, I don't even remember what the toughest question was, because let me tell you, the way the institution, the Institute for Justice, where I work, uh, prepares for these things, you go through so many moot courts and so many question and answer periods. Uh, that by the time you actually get in front of the justices, you are relieved to be there. And you are in fact so well prepared that the questions you get seem like a piece of cake compared to what you've been put through by your colleagues and by law professors and, and practitioners who have participated in all of these moot courts were far harder than experiencing it at the Supreme Court. Now, I have to admit, I didn't really appreciate, because this, this was the only U.S. Supreme Court argument I ever made, how close you are to the justices. You know, they're on this raised dais with, you know, behind this bench. Um, but I felt like I was no more than seven feet from uh, Chief Justice Roberts in the middle. And the rest of them are only marginally farther away. It's very close. And what you seek to achieve is sort of a conversation. But as you can tell, I speak very slowly. 
And the hardest thing, it wasn't the hardest question, but the hardest thing for me was to not start answering questions from, say, Justice Kagan or Justice Sotomayor, who were asking their questions so slowly that my time was running, you know, that the sands of time are running on you. I had 20 minutes because I was sharing with the Deputy Solicitor General and he had 10. And so your time is like rushing by as you're waiting for them to get these questions out. Thank God I didn't get questions from Justice Breyer because he's even worse in terms of how long it takes him to get out his questions. And they tend to be also sort of confusing as happened to Deputy uh, Solicitor General Wall. He got a question about charter schools and, you know, uh, schools from Breyer that, you know, ate up half of his time. I swear it took half of his time just to clarify the question so that it could be answered. And all it took was like, you know, the answer took 30 seconds. So that was the hardest part about the decision. Um, that and I guess, you know, it was apparent to me that Justice Kagan and Justice Ginsburg were buying this cockamamie argument that was being made by our opponents, which was that um, there was no discrimination anymore because uh, Montana Supreme Court had invalidated the whole program. Plain amendment. And you'll see in the that that's dealt with very simply. Yeah, no, I saw Ginsburg Wright said in her, her her in her opinion, she says there's no there's no issue here because the whole thing was thrown out and secular schools aren't getting the money either. So this money's not going to anybody. So how can this be a discrimination against religion in particular? Exactly. That and that was what I mean trying to get me to accept that idea and we rejected it in the same way that justice chief robert uh rejects it in his opinion he says the only reason they got rid of the program was because it included the religious schools and they applied their state blaine amendment to say religious schools can't participate and saying religious schools can't participate violates uh, the free exercise clause. So you've got this violation that directly leads to the invalidation of the program. And the reading that Justice Ginsburg uh, gives to uh, the decision below is simply wrong. The decision below only ex uh, invalidated the whole program because they, they saw there was no way to sever the part that wasn't unconstitutional, which was providing assistance in their view to families choosing secular schools from the families that were choosing religious schools, because there wasn't a severability clause as to that issue. Um, but you only have to consider severability it, after you've applied the Blaine Amendment that says you can't provide aid to religious schools. Well, you were you said at the beginning of your of your conversation here of our conversation, you said, well, you know, I, I wasn't as confident as some of my colleagues were. So who was the justice you were most worried about? Oh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Um, no question about it. Um, 
from past decisions, um, including a case like Mitchell versus Helm, which was a, is the most uh, uh, a precursor to the Trinity Lutheran decision of a couple of years ago. Um, Mitchell versus Helms is now pretty old. It's from 2000. Uh, we, we thought for sure that we had uh, justices uh, Thomas uh, and Alito from their past cases. Um, we were very hopeful about justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. And in fact, um, questions that came up at oral argument uh, it seemed clear that Justice Kavanaugh uh, understood what Blaine Amendments are and their, their anti-Catholic uh, underpinnings or origins. Uh, it seemed clear from a question that Justice Gorsuch asked that I thought he had him. But Justice, um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts was a uh, swing vote in our view, because it seemed pretty clear that Justice Ginsburg, Kagan, and Sotomayor were against us, and Justice Breyer, you know, despite recognizing the anti-Catholic origins of Blaineman, has nonetheless had no problem with uh, viewing the federal constitution uh, and Blaine Amendments as okay when they discriminate against religious people in religious schools. He's comfortable with that. So Roberts was, and, and the thing about Roberts that made you nervous was his just his hesitation to do anything as sweeping as it seemed to be, or was there something more specific that made you nervous about where he would come out? Well, we knew at the by the time the argument was over that we needed him and i don't think he tipped his hand uh at oral argument uh the same way that that most of the other justices had now obviously clarence thomas did not tip his hand in any way um but from mitchell versus helms and the the plurality opinion he wrote in that case we knew that he understood what Blaine amendments were all about uh, because he's the the first opinion from the Supreme Court that we've ever had that recognized that Blaine amendments aren't some sort of innocuous effort to create a greater separation of church and state, but something specifically aimed at a particular religion to disadvantage that particular religion just like uh, the case of uh, Lukumi, Babalu I, where what was involved was specific discriminatory actions taken by the city of Hialeah against the Santeria religion. The, and Blaine Amendments are basically the same sort of thing as that, except they're against Catholics, um, a much bigger uh, Threat to the Protestant uh, establishment in the United States. So uh, Roberts was very uh, careful, I think, in his questions not to tip his hand. Um, and so we and I think our opponents were largely arguing to Roberts to try and get him, in our case, 
to apply the Trinity Lutheran decision, which he also wrote, he wrote that one as well, um, to this other context, which we believed was substantially easier than the Trinity Lutheran context, which was a direct grant to a church to resurface its preschool playground. I mean, that was a grant from Missouri that was at stake there and which they denied to a church itself. We were talking about something much more attenuated, which was uh, tax credits given to taxpayers to donate to scholarship funds with their 501c3s that were not permitted to give. They had to provide scholarships to any school that, that wanted to participate in the program, parents, and, and the scholarships go to parents who choose, which is Zellman. Well, so you, you, you mentioned your opponent or trying to, they were doing their best to nail down uh, Roberts for their side, uh, but did they fumble the ball? Did you feel like they, there was some, uh, that they, they could have made a better case, that, that they had a chance and they, and they lost it, or you think they made their best possible case? Oh, I think that they were very smart. Um, I think they were very smart. I mean, they, the basis on which they defended the Montana Supreme Court decision was, were completely different than what they defended it on in the Montana Supreme Court. In the Montana Supreme Court, they basically said, hey, um, this doesn't violate the federal constitution. I mean, ap applying it to exclude religious schools from the program and thus religious families, um, they, they thought that was perfectly okay under the federal constitution, and it certainly was perfectly okay under the Montana constitution. And if there was any problem, it fell in the play in the joints idea that comes from out of the Locke v. Davey decision. Now, they obviously argued Locke at the U.S. Supreme Court, but mostly what they, they tried to say was these procedural issues, which was this isn't a good vehicle for you all to address this question. Because look, they uh, invalidated the whole program. So there's no discrimination. There'd be discrimination if you only excluded- So they took the Ginsburg position, more or less, or she takes their position. Yes, she took their position, one of their positions. Yes, absolutely. Well, listen, this has just been a fascinating uh, conversation. So how, let me ask you finally, how does it feel to end up on top? You've had this wonderful career and your last case is your best case and it has a very exciting and rewarding ending. What's it feel like? Uh, well, I'm sure it feels a whole hell of a lot better than if we had lost this case, um, but it does feel good um, because I think there's a lot of states out there who have taken equally extreme uh, interpretations of their Blaine amendments as Montana had. States like Idaho, uh, Missouri, um, those states already view their Blaine amendment in such a way that it conflicts with the First Amendment free exercise clause. And in those states, there are now real possibilities 
for school choice programs that did not exist for Espinoza. Um, you know, there are a lot of states that for policy reasons will not, you know, walk through the door that Espinoza has opened. You know, I don't think California is gonna walk through the door, but Texas could now, uh, Missouri could, Idaho could, South Dakota could. These are states um, that either did not or have any interpretation in their Blaine Amendment or that had bad ones. There's lots of states that have already done school choice. You know, there's I think 38 um, uh, states with some form of school choice. 18 of them involve tax credit programs similar to Montana's. Um, so the Blaine Amendments are a, a big work and a big barrier to progress. And that has ended. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dick, for joining me on the Education Exchange today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Paul. I have been speaking with Richard Comer, former senior attorney at the Institute of Justice and the lead attorney for Kendra Espinosa, decided by the Supreme Court this past term. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.